Hi, Phil Aston here from Now Spinning Magazine with another episode of the podcast. And I'm very pleased to welcome back Martin Popoff, author extraordinaire and musicologist. And on this episode, we're going to talk about Deep Purple, The Morse Years, all about Steve Morse. Now, both of us have very recently compiled like a top 20 Morse period list of what we feel are our, the best tracks from this period of the band and even ranked the albums as well. However, when we were both discussing this, we realised that there's a different dynamic in how we look back at this period of the band's history, which is vast and deep, in that when we look about the Blackmore period or whatever else, it's so much easier to pick those classic tracks out of the ether where it is with the Steve Morse ones. So we thought we'd rather than just compare each other's top 20, which I'll put links to on the YouTube channel and on my website so you can compare them after this broadcast, is how how we look back on this period and why is it that when we pick any of these albums, it isn't as easy to pick those top tracks as it might be when you look back at Machine Head, for example. Yeah, it this was this was a tough exercise and um what what bore it out, you know, as I was doing my list uh, cuz I had to do my list for Goldmine magazine, right? And so it's it's up there and it's uh, you know, they've got the the video clips in it and all that. I've got it on my my second computer screen here. Um but what I found interesting about doing this list was um you know, my my lack of confidence in really being able to decide which songs to put on there because of the consistency of this catalog. And I was actually looking forward to when I stuck this up on Facebook and shared it all over the place and saw what came back. And, um, you know, what came back was mostly, um, you know, people agreeing, Oh, glad that's on there. Glad that's really high and all that stuff. Um, but you know, there were a few trends here and there where, where people talked about songs that maybe weren't on there that they shot, uh, thought should have been on there. So, so I thought, well, you know, I, I suppose if, uh, if we went just beyond Martin and Phil and we got, uh, you know, another hundred people who are, who are deep, deep purple fans to sort this out, you'd, you'd, you'd eventually, of course, mathematically, no matter how many people you pick, you, you would end up with a correct answer. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's uh, it it's an interesting catalog, and I, I suppose I've got it broken up uh, a little bit into into eras here. But uh, I don't know. I'll I'll stop there. I'll let you comment. And <laughs> I think well, the the fan base of Deep Purple. I mean, the the demographic is older than it was in the seventies. That that demographic then were were probably living at home with their parents, and music was just all encompassing, all involving. You didn't have to worry about probably paying the rent or putting the food on the table. It was just music. You were you probably went to work perhaps or you were still at school, but it was just music. So you absorbed the albums, which to be fair, all those albums in that period only had seven songs on them. Even the live album only had seven tracks on it. Um, so you only had seven songs to get your head around and they were all drastically different than each other. Now, a lot, that demographic is a lot older with mortgages, jobs and careers and children and all the rest of it and all the albums have got 12 tracks on at least and there's there's more of a merging of those songs and we don't people you don't have as much time to sit down and perhaps listen to an album multiple times um so for me perpendicular is the one which i can because it was so different blackmore had left they were coming around on tour the set list was dramatically different and the songs were on that particular album were very diverse and stood out. The Aviator being very different to Sometimes I Feel Like Screaming, to different to Rosa's Cantina, for example. Whereas other ones, um, like uh, Rapture of the Deep, there was more of a merging of styles and that the cream of the songs and that album, apart from the title track, which they toured extensively, it's... It, even though um, I put my list up and those of you who watched my own YouTube channel, uh, video on this, as I look through the track listings, I'll be honest, as a purple nut, I don't feel I know the albums as well as I know the older ones. 
That's a really good point. I mean, you made a number of good points there. So, so number one, um, you know, these albums have lots more songs on them. So that's one thing. Um, and in the old days, like you say, I mean, we, you know, basically there were, you know, one one hundredth the amount of albums coming out in any given year that there is now. Um, and also, I think with Purple, uh, with specifically the Blackmore era, and actually, yeah, fr- frankly, yeah, you're not really on Come Taste the Band. Um, you you definitely had songs that were more uh, based around the riff itself um, on those albums. Production was much easier to understand and cleaner and simpler. Um, you're right. You had a lot of so this is a big one. You you had a lot of variety uh, between songs, but what Purple has sort of morphed into quietly, silently, sophisticatedly over over this course of what do we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven albums plus uh, plus the quite horrible Turning to Crime album. Yeah. Um, so we've got seven seven uh, albums of new material. What I notice, and you mentioned sometimes I feel like screaming, which uh, if I look at my list, I believe I put that number one, yeah. no, two. I put it number two, Seventh Heaven, I put number one. Um, so I was listening to Sometimes I Feel Like Screaming the other day. I was walking around listening yeah. to this record, Perpendicular. And, um, you know, um, so one thing I notice uh, as well is that that's a perfect example of a song where um, they have so many different parts within the songs mellow parts heavy parts and the other thing is you know you 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 think of the way you mathematically looked at heaviness as a kid or at least we did when i listen to a lot of these these current uh period deep purple songs um number one lots of parts but number two uh not particularly based on riff number three um can't really can't really pin whether whether these parts are heavy or not heavy in a lot of cases and i was trying to analyze why that is right and part of it is over time they've gotten better at basically everything and one thing they've gotten even better at is that that meld between uh heavy rhythm guitar type organ from don airy on most of these and the guitar because steve morse has quite heavy tone in fact he has kind of a heavier tone than richie ever had in a way like there's a there's a lot of distortion to it and i noticed you even get that that heavy tone um on many of his soloing situations as well so he could solo and be playing high up the fretboard and it could be quite heavy sounding uh quite quite electronic or electric so so that happens a lot as well and 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 i was trying to analyze further why these parts that seemed pretty heavy, and like I say, they're they're somewhere like like I say, they're getting better at everything, right? So, so um, one of the things they're better at is um, confounding us on the definition of riff versus chordal. Um, so, so we can't even tell whether something's a riff or a chord uh, or a chord progression anymore with Deep Purple because they're in every department they're getting more sophisticated. And then I'm listening to Ian Pace's drumming and going. Okay, we've always thought of Ian Pace as a guy with a light touch, a jazzy touch, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, is this drumming heavy? And how is it recorded? And how is Bob Ezrin recording this stuff? Is he recording it heavy? And I'm going, well, the drums kind of sound pretty rocking and muscular, but is Ian playing that way? Um, the, the guitars sound heavy, but is Steve Morse thinking in a heavy metal state of mind? The, the Don Aries organ sounds heavy, but how is he thinking? He's kind of comedic at times, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, something I've learned over the years from when we did the Metal Evolution uh, episodes um, to think about um, extreme vocals, heaviness of vocal, right? And Ian Ian Gillen was never that guy. Um, no. You know, he would do these screams, and he's known for oh, I invented the heavy metal scream and all this stuff. But even his screams are a little comedic and a little uh mixed with falsetto uh sometimes so but but when he sings uh 
almost all the time when he sings, he's not singing particularly aggressively. And he and he does that even less now. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess it's not particularly heavy metal vocal. So so that's kind of the the, the complication I found. And I and I love the way you framed it. Is and and I think what I'm what I'm saying is I'm making my excuse for agreeing with you that it's hard to remember a lot of these songs. Titles again, wordplay. Um, there, you know, sometimes the titles are not particularly clear on what's going on, although they're sort of in the average zone uh, with that. They're not they're not Robert Plant, put it that way, or or Led Zeppelin, where the titles very often um, don't tell you what's going on. So I'll, yeah, I'll turn I, it back I, over to you. That's like, I agree with you, Martin. I think that because of the way that we probably grew up with Deep Purple, there is a kind of like uh, an aspect of being very driven by the riff. It's what you expect. The the riff starts, then the, there's a drum roll, and then the, the the keep repeating the riff, and the band joins in, the bass comes in, and there's going to be a vocal. In this period of Deep Purple, there's there isn't any of that really. I mean, my my first two I just reversed to yours, so I put sometimes I feel like screaming at number one, and I put Seventh Heaven at number two. Wow! And, I, okay. and the reason and the reason I picked Seventh Heaven is probably because it starts with a real standalone riff. And and I suppose if we look at Rapture of the Deep, which I put at number three, it's because it has a very memorable riff and entry point um, for the listener to get in and and kind of almost try and second guess where it's going. Because if you look at classic purple, whether it's space trucking or burn or smoke on the water or lazy, they're all, as you said, driven by a riff and then a and then a verse, then a chorus, then a riff and a solo. A lot of um, the Morse period um, of Deep Purple is quite complex. You could say they were closer to being like a pro- progressive rock band rather than a hard rock heavy metal band. And the song titles, as you say, if you look at them, Power of the Moon, we're all in the, we're all the same in the dark. They, they don't give anything away. Whereas obviously song titles like Space Trucking or Burn told you without hearing a note that this was probably not a ballad. <laughs> Whereas yeah. now you're not quite sure what it's going to be. And even when it starts, you're still not quite sure where it's going to go. Sometimes you feel like screaming has a has a um a structure where you you can second guess there's going to be a, a harder chorus or it's going to shift gear in the solo. But a lot of the other songs, Remission Impossible, Dancing in My Sleep, you're not quite sure where they're heading. They could suddenly go somewhere else and and Morse will take them in that other direction without being a typical riff it'll be like a, a run rather than the riff and 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 look and also gillen's vocals the melody he picks is not one that's obvious i i find that with continued listening to this period of deep purple you hear things that you didn't hear before whereas you kind of feel like some of the older catalog it's like putting on a, your favorite pair of slippers um because you just know them so well which i know some people who part of the no Blackmore, no purple camp will say that's because the songs are better, but I think they're missing the point that this, this is a, a very rich seam of the purple catalog that each time you run it past your senses, there's a good chance you'll pick up something that you, you didn't hear before. Yeah. Yeah. That whole, I mean, you, you could talk for hours about the idea of what is a good song, right? You know, the songs are better. That's such an abstract, hard to figure out thing. Yet people know when they hear a a hooky song on an album, you know, if you sat down a bunch of people in a listening session and said, pick out the hit, you know, most people are going to kind of sort that out. And sometimes it's super obvious, like walk this way or Bohemian Rhapsody or sweet action or ballroom blitz. Um, you know, sometimes it it just hits you right over the head. Uh, yeah, definitely these songs are not hitting you right over the head. But I would never argue that they were they were lesser songs. And it's and it's such a funny thing. Like like Ian Ian and I mean Roger might have said this this at, at the odd time as well. But Ian definitely, you know, I, I love when he frames the idea of what they're writing about saying, you know, I wrote, I've interviewed him many times and I, and he said things like, cause I remember we're writing, we're writing about what we care about as 50 year old men. Right. And now, you know, now they're 70. Right. But, but I remember specifically him explaining that as the first time a rock star ever said that to me, you know, it's like, well, we're writing about what we think about now and what we care about now. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's I've never heard anybody kind of debate this or talk about it, but I wonder sometimes 
if um, we'll get to Steve Morse, but I'm wonder I wonder if sometimes um, fans subconsciously or unconsciously or they haven't thought about it much or it's just like something's perturbing them but they don't know what it is and i wonder if part of or one element that is perturbing them is um is the wordplay and the lyrics and are are the lyrics sometimes too smarty pants and are they too off the cuff or are they too you know, unnovel. I mean, or novel, like like un um, unconventional, I suppose. Um, because you always hear, you know, again, you hear uh, about how. I mean, they're they're smart guys. They're readers. They sit there, do their crossword puzzles and all that stuff. You hear those quotes, right? Um, so so they love wordplay, and you can tell, and uh, and they really do provoke us with some some kind of uh, you know, like like they're prodding us to to uh, to to get into a fight with them over words. Certainly, when it comes, you know, many times when it comes to song titles. But you think of now what bananas, um, whoosh exclamation mark like now what question mark exclamation mark these ridiculous album covers like there's some bad bad album covers here as well right so so you feel like at least on a wordplay thing sometimes sometimes i think the fans although they haven't articulated it they know they're upset about something a, a, a few different things but i think one of the things that they haven't said that they're upset about that i think they are sub- upset about is sometimes they think ian ian is a little bit too smart for his britches or uh, or you know some of the things he's saying are a little bit too ian gillen or or he's or he's falling into a caricature of ian gillen i suppose over the years yeah, and as you said, well, they're in a different place. As you say, they're writing. I remember when Perpendicular came out, and they were asked for a, um, I think Mojo magazine, or it could have been Q magazine in the UK back then, saying they were asked to review uh, new releases, and they said we can't really comment because we're in our fifties and we can't really see the world through the eyes of someone in their twenties. And as you say, they're in their late seventies now. But also, I mean, back then, the the early evolution of the band, they would have been sitting around thinking, right, we need a good opener. We need a good opener for the stage. You know, we need some, you know, something fast to, for the open the set with. They're not, they don't do that now, I shouldn't imagine. They don't think like that. They're not going to write about fast cars or, or whatever else. They've, they've moved on. And I think Gillen, as you say, whatever he's been reading about, whatever's whatever he's bugged about, he'll just write something that is very wordy. And they also, during this period, had a guitarist who had you could play any style and he's and a lot of Steve Morse's solo back catalog, which is vast, but his his music there is very fusion based, very rock jazz rock fusion based, whether he brings in bits of um, country or classical music. And he's, he hasn't kind of detached himself from that when he joined Deep Purple. He didn't think, well, right, this is more of a blues based rock band. This is going to be a different, he's just carried on being himself. You know, if you listen to some of his solo albums, you could imagine them. You could transpose those, and Gillen could stick some of his clever lyrics on, and they'd probably work. The Dixie Dreg stuff. You know, there's a similarity. There's a more complex nature to how how Morse writes music. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on Steve, but I, but just before we leave wordplay, um, you know, the other thing, uh, the thought that came to me as I was seeing the um, the Facebook comments. Uh, come in on my list and uh, people would complain about things like any fool know uh, know that or uh, or razzle dazzle like I didn't put razzle dazzle on my list but I remember my visceral reaction to razzle dazzle when it came out as a song right and and it it, it didn't really strike me until I read these Facebook comments uh, the thought that to me this is the the lost in Hollywood syndrome okay so so the idea is that um I think uh, they had a lot of song titles that were on songs that were better than the song title that that I could tell that that some of these comments, uh, some of these people commenting that they were they were already ticked off at the song just based on the song title before they even got to the song. So yeah. so a song called like any fool know that F-U-L-E and K-N-O and even opening their first record back with the song called Vavoom colon. 
head the mechanics. So you got Vavoom on there. So so a heavy metal fan's going to think that's stupid putting Vavoom in a title. Then it's colon. So now they got a complicated title. And then they say mechanic and they say a guy named Ted. So <laughs> it's it's not a particularly English sounding name. And and the word mechanic is a song you don't as- associate putting into something like a Deep Purple song. So our, our title. So so the idea uh, is a little bit that and Pete and I recently did an episode on what makes music timeless. Right. So what takes a song away from being timeless is mentioning the beginnings of the Internet or having fax machine tones and stuff like that. Yeah. Saying the word mechanic in a Deep Purple song title is just incongruous. And and I think I, I really feel that. This all starts with uh, or or a greater example of it is Rainbow Lost in Hollywood. Right. So you think Rainbow and Hollywood don't go together at all. Like, what are they talking about? California is about as far away as you can get from from Wizards. England yeah. Uh, Wizards, yeah. Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. Uh, and you've got this Lost in Hollywood song. It's an absolute corker. And I consider it the greatest Rainbow song of all time. But it ain't called Stargazer. Right. It ain't called Light yeah. in the Black. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think I think a a, um, a a wall goes up, you know, one night in Vegas. Right. Um, you think as soon as you hear that, you think of, oh, boy, you know, the Ian Gillen stories of, you know, a drunken yeah. night on the town. Razzle dazzle. Like I say, when I heard that, it's like I don't want Deep Purple to call a song razzle dazzle. You know, it, yeah. it's all, I'm already annoyed. Right. So uh, anyways, I'll, I'll leave it there. We'll get back to Steve Morris. Any any comment on that idea? I, yeah, that's a you, you raise a very good point, um, because we think about the the imagery of the song titles, as we, as I said earlier, you, you when you read Highway Star, Burn, Stormbringer, um, you know, they they before you heard them, you were imagining that, you know, what they might be like because of the 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 type of music that Deep Purple were generating, you know, speaking, etc. You that they conjured up. You thought, well, that isn't going to be a ballad, or this is going to be a riff-driven song, or it's going to be great live. Before you heard a note, and you're right that you know some of the things like hip boots and stuff like that, Johnny's band. You think, well, that isn't going to be like that. Before I even know what it is, um, you know, that's that's going to be the case. And I think. Um, Apri and stuff, uh, Vincent Price, which is a great track, but it's not. Well, I suppose they did Mary Long, which was a which was a kind of a, a tip, an early example of Gillen taking uh, observational stuff going on in society at the time. Um, but yeah, you're right that a lot of the the Morse period song titles follow the kind of route that Gillen was going, and has gone in some of his solo stuff really. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm still on the first album. We got Rose's Cantina. Hey, Cisco, you know, these flashy song titles that don't sound particularly, you know, Gothic English, you know, we invented heavy metal, deep purple, right? The perpendicular waltz. So you got a a pun in there and you've got the title again, Um, you know, cascades colon i'm i'm not your lover right so a complicated song title so so that's pretty annoying but um to go back to address your point about steve morse um you know steve's it, it's an interesting one um you go so what is his style and i listened to a pile of of um you know riffs chordal patterns and a pile of solos and stuff and number one he's just super um tasteful and interesting and he will compose a beautiful, beautiful solo. But that's not a style, right? Um, yeah. That's just somebody who has taste and and who is a sophisticated guitar player. So so you can almost throw that out as a, or you can diminish that or or play that down and and say, okay, I'm still not on board with Steve Morris, right? So so what is his style? That the one thing that I notice that he does, which gives him a style all his own. Is the is the little chattery fills between the notes that he does right? Mm-hmm. He goes, so so I almost consider that like a drum fill, um, because it's a little rhythmic thing he does, and it's 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 kind of a it's kind of more like a um a bell or bell and whistle or a gimmick or a or a trick, um, 
rather than a full style. It's because it's so specific, right? You're really talking about something specific. Other than that, I mean, you would know better. I mean, what what do you think his his style is? Does he have a style beyond that? I think he's he's a very very obviously he's completely different guitarist to Blackmore Bowling or Simon McBride, uh, who are more were all more blues based bowling was kind of jazz orientated as well but nothing like steve morse um who steve morse although the the entry point note and the one he's going to might be on the blues scale the bits in between are completely off that and uh, and and drag along and go through a jazz classical um you know route and as you say it's those little fills he doesn't it always puts it always puts something in that space and everything he does, even 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 the riffs, some of the riffs you think when you listen to the, some of the songs, they could probably be more sim- simplified. The introduction to a lot of the songs in the this period of purple are quite complex because of how it, how many extra little chords or fills he puts in. Mm. You know, to, to everything. You know, Gillen sings a line, and then instead of it just being a couple of chords for it to all float on before we get to the chorus, he doesn't do that. It kind of goes down a staircase, comes up the other side, goes down a waterfall. <laughs> he puts everything yeah. in it. He, yeah. He's a very busy player. Um, and he does that in everything, whether it's um, country picking stuff off, off Dixie Dregs. He, again, he'll just fill it with 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 all notes that are all on target, but he's a completely opposite guitarist where you say less, less is more. Um, Morse is like more. Um, that's what he does. Even on the solo on Sometimes I Feel Like Screaming, which is very melodic. As it gets to the climax of that song, he starts to put in more stuff around the motif that he's designed in that song, and which mm-hmm. was, which is why I think it's it hit a nerve with so many people is because it has such a memorable um, guitar melody towards the end, which he repeats over and over. But but he's still then, especially live, he puts in as you say those trills and those extra notes where he can. It's who he is. Yeah, yeah. Just be- before we go on, I just want to show some of these these strange album covers because I did t- take all this stuff out. So uh, yeah, that that's that's one of the more ridiculous ones, right? <laughs> so we got we got now now what? Yeah, caps all caps on now. Yeah, and then what? And then they don't bother to put the question mark and the exclamation mark after the what? They stick it in the middle of the page. Uh, and then on the um on the on the spine, they do it correctly. They they do now what correctly on the spine. Yeah, and I, I noticed they've also got an exclamation mark in the uh, in, as for the L in purple. And then this one got a lot of abuse too, right? Bananas. Yeah. So yeah. you know, this one got a lot of abuse for just the silliness of the title. And then, uh, oh, we're just going to take this stock photo of uh, of these guys in India or Pakistan or whatever it is yeah. on the banana truck kind of thing, right? Um, so that's that's uh, framed up with an ad from from Burn. Um, I, I want to add one more thing about Steve yeah. Morse that I feel is part of his style. It's uh, it's a joyous style. It's a joyous, sublime sort of style, right? It's it's burbly. You you said the word waterfall. I mean, it sounds like you're you're under a nice waterfall yeah. in Hawaii or something. You're you're sitting there you know, behind the waterfall in a nice little lagoon pool or something. Right. So, so he does have a, um, he does have a style that's kind of like um, um, not, not messianic, but more like uh, ecstatic uh, at a religious experience, sort of ecstatic. It's, it's kind of a very happy, you know, buoyant, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being uplifted into the heavens sort of style when he's, when he's soloing. Yeah, he's 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 not a melancholy um, guitar player at all. Even you know, above and beyond, and songs which were you know dedicated to John Lord, it's still his playing is still very uplifting. Going back to the song titles, I think it's almost as if with Richie Blackmore gone, they just wanted to completely empty what had gone before. Because if you think about all this, these song titles, especially even with Perpendicular, if if Richie had still been in the band, none of those song titles would have got through, would they? I can't. I can't <laughs> imagine Blackmore point. saying he wouldn't have allowed a song called "Ted the Mechanic" or um, it wouldn't. It just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. That that's such a good point, right? He was just saying, yeah, that's not. Heavy. It's it's like Ronnie James Dio saying, uh, saying, you know, that's a bit jolly, right? That was one of his favorite quotes, right? Someone bring in something a little commercially, he'd say that's a bit jolly, and and uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm looking now at. Um, Abandon, which is uh, probably probably my favorite uh, overall of these albums, but you know we've got Evil Louie on there, 
what's her name? So it's more wordplay, right? Like, like squeezing the words together. I put what's her name on my list, but again, I feel that's one that people look at that and they're already in a bad mood, right? They're already in a bad mood. They don't know how to spell it. Um, so they, so you don't, writers don't write it. That's another funny thing I've, I've noticed, uh, in life, right? You know, People, people avoid trying to type Motorhead or, or Wasp or Motley Crue because they don't want to look up how to how to stick yeah, in yeah, that yeah, umlaut, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, it happens all the time, right? Um, so you you look for other ways to say these things. But yeah, any fool know that to kick off the album. Um, so yeah, you definitely got... Um, uh, I, you know, I, again, we got, uh, we got, uh, I got your number walk on picture silver tongue. Uh, yeah. Bananas. Um, so another, another interesting thing about this I, I found is, um, again, as we, as we get older, uh, you know, I, I touched on it earlier, this idea of the productions, right? So, so the productions here, um, so, so it's funny you've got kind of three eras with this stuff you've got the self-produced albums the first two which sound great um one is i guess produced by deep purple the other one's produced by deep purple and roger glover Mm -hmm. um and then you've got the two michael bradford albums and to me both of those i know i know they they kind of had some complaints about them i i think bananas is the one that people like the least maybe out of all of these records and again i think the title and the album cover had a lot to do with that yeah I but agree. i find that one to be the only one out of all of these that seems to be uh incorrect in a small way and, and to me it's a little bit it's a little bit bright and it's lacking a little bottom end but i don't think rapture of the deep sounds that way so all of a sudden it's almost like they turned the bass up almost too much on rapture of the deep so it so it's so so there is no michael bradford sound and then obviously you get into the bob ezrin years where again the production is really super interesting it's 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 almost like a metaphor for the sophistication of Steve Morris the sophistication of the lyrics the sophistication of the complicated songs the sophistication of not knowing what's riff and what's chordal um not knowing what's a heavy song the sophistication of debating are they a prog band are they a jam band yeah not so much jam band but i would say prog band or uh, or what else would you call them? Symphonic band. They're almost like symphonic using traditional instruments. But but the funny thing is that Bob Ezrin's productions are so sophisticated and beautiful sounding that you start debating, are they heavy enough? You know, it, it's a it's a weird debate that goes on about. And then but but when you break it down, you go everything is all heavy here, but I don't know what's what, what here is sending me the signals that this isn't super heavy. I don't know what it is. Uh, and, and it might be, it might really have to do uh, also with that abstract thing that you mentioned about Steve. And, and we know it exists with Ian and Roger, this idea of, we don't like heavy metal and, and Steve is, is more like, I don't think heavy metal. Um, so, so they, they can turn in songs that sound like heavy that that sound like heavy metal on a surface level, but you know their brains aren't wired that way. So so some so there's some disconnect there where it's it's holding the listener back from thinking they're heavy metal. Yeah, I think they don't. I mean, I suppose we don't really know, but they don't write for the stage anymore. They write obviously, as you say, they look inward and they write what they want to write. Um, I, I remember hearing now what for the first time because they they. They'd obviously fallen out with the music business in respect, or they they'd fallen out with the idea that it was even worth releasing albums um, because after Rapture of the Deep, they just stopped, didn't they? And they just basically went on tour forever, you know, doing machine head tours and basically just going round and round in circles. And until they realised maybe we, you know, everyone else around us from our peer group seems to be releasing something, maybe we should. So they came back with Now What? And I remember putting time aside to listen to Now What, you know, quite loud in my, on my home stereo. And loved it, and and I thought the sound is, the sound was immaculate and everything. But I'll, I'll be honest and say that at the end of it, apart from Hell to Pay, which had been played on Planet Rock a lot, mm-hmm. I couldn't really remember a lot of it. Whereas, whereas, yeah. because the music was complex, it was very yeah. prog. The the keyboard sound was very different to what I expected from Don Airy. And this was a this was a new. I loved it, uh, but I I couldn't have said straight away, oh, this track or that track. It had like a lot of, you know, complex music or 
it had it was it had gone in, but there wasn't like obvious vocal motifs or choruses or middle eights to latch onto. Apart from Hell to Pay, which I knew, which was probably the most um obvious structured rock song on the on the album, in a way. Part of what's going on there, Phil, in your head is is that is that um you you are you are remembering they will fade because they are just parts and if you don't keep playing them but you're you're remembering parts that you really liked but but those parts can be you know one part in this song another part in that song another part in that song um and i noticed that when my, making my my list for goldmine it was the same thing it's like i love this song because of that part it's one of my favorite parts period um but wow i didn't know they had a mellow verse in this song because i thought it was a heavy song and it's like i was surprised you know surprising myself and then and then you know steve would solo over a different pile of music and uh you know they'd have they'd have like a couple of break sections and a little jammy section and then uh you know you'd hear a keyboard solo that you forgot was even in there sort of thing yeah um yeah totally that happens a lot and then you know on the subject of don airy like don airy is just like john lord plus 40 percent. he's like i'm gonna give you everything john lord gave you i'm gonna also give you don airy and and i'm gonna give you some you know to 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 be even more meta and sophisticated i'm gonna give you this abstract cross between john lord and don airy right um way more sounds uh amazing sounds uh but in the computer age you you think you're always suspicious of how they're getting these sounds right yeah. um because it doesn't seem as authentic as as you know you hear the old storied way of how they got you know these various sounds right um but yeah pr- pretty interesting so so yeah you, you you go through these records and um and it's because it's, it's because you don't have one or two motifs to latch on to like you would on an early unsophisticated Deep Purple song, which I guess a lot of fans are saying are better songs written better or whatever. They're just written with less stuff in them. Right. Um, and that's and that just causes us to be flummoxed about, you know, what to say about these albums. Well, yeah, I mean, songs like Dancing in My Sleep, the bonus track off Wash is probably more immediate because it's it's more simple but in some ways i mean not not everyone will agree with this at all um but the mu- the music from this period it kind of aligns itself with um some of the latter day bands like opeth in, in that it's it's dense and complex and and it, it takes multiple listens to as you say um what was it well a song i said before we went live um man alive from bush that wasn't right. on my list. Didn't make my top twenty. But when I was playing it today, I really thought, "Well, oh, I love that bit, <laughs> and I love that part." And like sixty nine off um, "Abandon," I like the bit when it drops back with John Lord's solo. So, as you say, you like there are certain parts, musical interludes, a bit like as I say, bands like Opeth, where you you can't really tip, dip dip into what you think is the beginning or the middle or the end of a song because there are different things going on. So in a way, yeah. they've challenged us as rock fans, as we've got older, that the music has become deeper and more complex and deserves further listens. And actually, your ears don't get tired of it, whereas you might do, you know, if you hear another live version of Space Trucking or something, you think, well, I know where this is going. Whereas yeah, these, yeah. they're not obvious. Here's what I said about Man Alive. Here's Purple Again, surprising us brilliantly in their Vinch's years, writing a dystopian song that is up-tempo, not all that heavy, more like a hard-hitting 4-4 semi-epic you might get out of semi-prog bands like Saga or Magnum. That's the other thing. They're generally giving us all these parts in 4-4 time, but they're but they're prone to drop beats here and there. They, they just don't want to write comp, you know, songs that are difficult to get a handle on, but but they will they will at will be able to drop beats and, and keep groovy at it. Uh, as is very often the case when Purple Go Prog, the chord changes are both novel and melancholy. There's also a soundtracky quiet bit at the beginning, middle and end, yeah. with the result being yet another song that doesn't follow any rules other than using Purple's signature instrumentation and, and Ezrin's found high fidelity sound that he seems to have reserved just for them uh that's that's something i find interesting as well is that bob ezrin you know because bob ezrin has a lot of albums in his career that don't sound all that great the entire alice cooper catalog the the original band those records don't sound very good um but with um but with uh with purple um it's almost like he's he's dug in and and pulled out the essence of 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 who Steve Morse is and Don Airy is and, and Ian Pace is and not so much the bass, not so much the vocals, but, um, and, and just, uh, and just 
and just put a stamp on these records and given them a sound that I've never heard anybody else sound like this. Um, and then like, like I say, the other point here is like, um, this sounds like Magnum. Uh, it sounds yeah, like yeah. Uh, your eye heap. I have a little bit of the same problem with I'll play a song and I'll go, wow, that's uh, I think that's a heavy metal song, uh, but it's so beautiful and so melodic. And so yeah. there's so much keyboards in it, but yet those are heavy metal keyboards. Those are distorted, <laughs> you know, keyboards. Yeah. So it's like, and then, and then it's like, I can't even tell the keyboards apart from the guitars because they're both doing kind of a distortion pedal sound and they're both high up in the mix. And, you know, they're, they're kind of playing, they're both, they're, they're the two rhythm guitarists in this band. So yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm trying to figure out heaviness of this band is, yeah. is off. The, the other thing I'd like to touch uh, before we finish is that the live aspect of um, how this band operated, because obviously with the first album came out in 96 um, perpendicular. And obviously that, that tour, they, they can, they completely revamped the live set with some purple classics that had never been played live before well pictures of home they they also did rap back blue and um, bloodsucker and all sorts of things but they also put a lot of perpendicular into the set and and as you as we've just been saying the the morse period of songwriting is very different more complex than the than the previous incarnation of purple and this the morse years are the longest period of the band being in existence what's interesting with you doing your goldmine post and me doing mine is the love there is from fans for this period now a lot of people really love steve morse and miss him and love all this thing i think i feel that the band the the key members should have had more confidence in keeping some of these steve morse period songs in the set period uh, you know, things like sometimes I feel like screaming. I don't feel that should have ever dropped out. It was a new classic for the band. And each time they came round, they just put a few token tracks in from the most recent album, but everything else was pulled back. And it was the machine head dominated tracks as usual. I mean, what are your thoughts on how they catered yeah. for this? Period. That's a really good point. Be more like Steve Harris, right? Just just hammer us with the new songs and just say, yeah. look, we're going to do this. We're proud of this album. And yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, I, I guess that's almost like a management question in a way. It's like it's like manage the set list to make sure that, that you know, over time we build five, six, seven track, uh, you know, classic tracks that everybody's going to remember. And they're going to remember them because we because we play them more as well. Uh, you know, I, I feel like. um I, I feel like most of the fans would probably pick perpendicular and maybe abandon. I mean, I, I really plump for abandon a lot. I, I love abandon. I think it's really amazing near the back half of the album. And I say that in my list, but um, I, I think part of that is, is time is passing, but I think part of that is also that subtly, 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 those songs are, are a little closer to uh, being able to wrap your head around. And it's, it's funny. I mentioned earlier, I never really thought about this. Um, I think I think Perfect Strangers, House of Blue Light, Slaves and Masters, Battle Rages On are are essentially all at the same sort of um, you know simple song structure level as all the early stuff. And it's only Come Taste the Band that kind of stands out where I think Come Taste the Band is is almost like the spiritual heir of this era. I think, mm. yeah. Because I, 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 I mean, there's lots of people who've mentioned stuff like it's, it's a shame they never had the courage, even to do like special gigs where they just did the, their own the Steve Morse period live a set of you know Steve Morse period. Obviously, they'd have to stick in Smoke on the Water, obviously, but they had enough to do that. that I feel that yeah. you know one of the sad things was every time you went to see them, you'd only see songs from the current album, and if you and the following year, well, whenever they drop those. And you would be, it would be the usual things, you know. And I'm sure Black, it's not Blackmore. Uh, Gillen was obviously more happy and relaxed in singing the, the the more recent stuff. But obviously, there was a fear that if we do this, it will upset our hardcore fans. But I, I wonder whether they really knew the felt like they knew the fans enough to know that actually there was a lot of people in the audience that wanted them to do. Sometimes I feel like screaming to expect it to be in the set. 
Yeah, you wonder, you wonder, I mean, they've got such a great catalog with Steve of lots of records that uh, you you almost wonder if they could go on a tour and say, this is all we're going to do. Um, And, you know, this is for this, this fairly large fan base that would be, you know, the fans who love the Steve Morris era kind of thing. Like, you know, it's, it'd be for the, for the, you know, deep scholarly, deep purple fans who have accepted all this stuff. But yeah, there's, there's tons and tons of material there. And you'd see, you'd see a great jazzy performance of a show you'd see you'd see amazing uh, you know uh, uh, arrangements brought to life you'd see amazing instrumentation um obviously um you know you you'd be seeing solos that these bands the, that these members like don or steve actually composed and wrote or whatever how much writing they do but but it's it's their stamp they're going to give you the solo that they believe in uh more rather than having to fit something in i guess that's one of the things we haven't really mentioned is is one of the reasons people complain about steve is that when he played played plays slash the old stuff it's not close enough to what blackmore did or whatever right so so that's that's a funny thing as well but uh yeah, I I don't know. I I just I just feel I always bring this catalog up as being um as being, you know, one of the best examples of a heritage act doing their best music now. And that whole idea of um, you know, it kind of it's kind of logical and it makes sense that that everybody, you know, gets better at their craft over time. So so why why don't bands make their best music as they get older and older and it just gets better and better and better? And in most occupations, that's that's kind of how it works, right? Um, although in most occupations as well, you get to a point where someone says, He's losing his edge, he's making mistakes, you know. Yeah, it's uh yeah. he's probably should retire soon. He's gonna he's gonna get someone killed, you know, uh kind of thing, right? So so it's it's funny that way as well. But yeah, there we we both know people complain about this era and it's it's hard and and we're trying to wrap our heads around why, right? I think there's also as we started, there's everything is available now. Um, I mean, if we go back, if I go back to the seventies, um, and what what I was buying in the late seventies, a lot of bands like that I grew up with, the the Slades, the Mot, the Hoople's, all their albums were out of print. Things were only in print for a few years; they're then gone. You couldn't hear them. There was no internet. You couldn't go and find them. They were just gone. Whereas now, everything is available all at once, and. And this part of the catalogue of a band like Deep Purple isn't something you play. Well, I'll, I've played it, you know, um, now what on, on Monday um, and I've and that's enough. It's a kind of album going back again to our, our youth where you would come home from, you know, from work or school and you'd put it on every night. You play now what every night. And by the end of the week, it would have it would have gone in further. It, 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 in fact, it's closer to Genesis or Pink Floyd or Yes. In the in the complexity of the arrangements of the songs than it is to you know your typical heavy metal band, and so I think that this period of the band deserves more time. Uh, it it isn't. A, I think saying to somebody, "Oh, you you need to listen to Wash by Deep Purple," it, it you feel like saying you need to give it time, like an Opeth album. <laughs> you need to um you need to give a give it a week, live with it, and 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 it will show you different sides of the band that you didn't know existed beyond like woman from Tokyo or, um, you know, child in time, there's different aspects, you know, Gillen's lyrics, they might be a bit too clever now, but equally it shows where he is in his life and they are different to, you know, you know, some of the, some of the stuff. I mean, I, I totally, what you said earlier about things like razzle dazzle and stuff, obviously I was just the same as you I thought, Oh, <laughs> I can always guess what this is like. And it was, but overall that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Razzle Dazzle brings up another point. It's like, you know, there, there are, you know, every, every music fan is is going to have certain styles or things about a band that's going to rub, rub them the wrong way. And and one thing we knew, we do know Deep Purple likes to do is that barrel house piano sort of. Yeah. Movie yeah. Movie sound, the rock, right? so, yeah. The rock and roll. And that's something I don't really want to hear a lot of. And Razzle Dazzle kind of feels like one of those. So every time they do one of those, I'm not crazy about it. Anytime they do kind of a slow blues, I'm not crazy about it, but most of the rest of it, it's like, wow, this is like super interesting and super fresh. So. Do you think, I mean, that's because Gillen, He's also just before we finish. He's also obviously gone back and done his javelin stuff. He's 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 very. He seems more aware of his kind of rock and roll Elvis roots, and it's almost as if he, amongst all of this kind of proggy, more complex, deeper stuff, he he feels he has to just 
put that side of his personality, which again, it's like as if the Gillen band have crept in through the back door. You know, he wants to show that that side of the the depth of the history of rock, really. Yeah, it's a good point, and you know, he he can't be, because it is the CD age, and you can do these long albums, and they're and they're having fun. Um, they love Bob Ezrin, and they're they're creative, and Bob Ezrin is super opinionated and creative himself. He's he's getting his you know rolling up his sleeves and getting right into the songs as well. Um, so you know they're they're having a good time, and and they realize it's it's almost like you know putting that in is almost like a metaphor for what I said about Don Airy. It's like John Lord plus 40%, right? It's like, well, this is just every style of deeper. You're going to get everything from us, right? And uh, and and sometimes it's going to be a buried part that you may barely even know exists. And that's the only time you're going to get that part, but it's not the whole song. Well, well, I totally agree. And I think on that note, we'll we'll pull the show to an end. But I'd like to just say um, to everyone watching this, um, just dive in to the Steve Morse years of Deep Purple. Um, Obviously, check out um, Martin's Goldmine article where he lists his 20 tracks and mine as well on the Now Spinning website. We've got very different um, lists in some ways. The the ones at the top are the same. But the other thing is that as we started this and why we did this um, podcast was it's actually very difficult to to come up with a concise and perfect list of what you feel is the best Steve Moore's period Deep Purple songs because there's so many different aspects to them, which on repeated listens shows something else. It's a bit like um, the early Deep Purple might be a painting of a of a fruit bowl or a scene of a, a seascape, whereas this period of Deep Purple is there's a lot more going on in the painting, and every time you walk past it, you spot something else. Yeah, the Garden of Earthly Delights, right? That that whole thing, right? Just <laughs> yeah. like a like, or or like a or like a is his name David Patchett who does the cathedral yeah. Uh, yeah, artworks? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, what are what are you up to at the moment, Martin? Have you got any what books are you working on? Um, let's see. So coming out soon will be the, the Blue Oyster Cult panel book, um, Dominance and Submission. That's through yep. Weimer, my UK publisher. Uh, also soon will be my, uh, the Who Quadrophenia book from oh, uh, wow. Motorbook. So that's going to be a big, you know, in a slip yeah. case. I think it's in a slip case. Maybe not. Uh, but a big hardcover coffee table book. So that's a 50th oh, that anniversary book, like, like my Pig Floyd Dark Side of the Moon one. That one's coming out soon. Uh, I've got Kiss at 50 coming out uh, in the fall. Um, that's going to be a big nice hardcover full color throughout book as well so yeah i'm working on a few other things i probably shouldn't announce but uh and then we've got our video channel the contrarians and yeah. i've got my weekly uh history and five songs with martin pop off the next episode which will go up uh what, what day is it today so we'll go up tomorrow we'll be about uh, all about instrumentals what we like about them what we don't like about them why we like them why we don't like them fantastic and people can find you at martinpopoff.com and yep. also there's a Facebook group, isn't there, for your five um, best songs? History and five songs. Yeah, History there's a Facebook uh, group for that. There's a Facebook uh, group for contrarians as well. So, yeah. yeah. And then my my regular one. So, yeah, lots of lots of debating music stuff all over those things. So. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks very much for your time, Martin. And thank you, everyone, for tuned in for this podcast. And please check out the Naspinning magazine website at naspinning.co.uk. And I shall see you on my next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. A big thank you to my guest, Martin Popoff, and thank you for tuning in to listen and watch to the Nas Billing Magazine podcast with me, Phil Aston. And the Steve Morse period of Deep Purple is well worth your exploration if you're new to the band. Um, there's lots of albums to discover, lots of songs. And as we said in our discussion, some of the songs just get better with each play. And for those of you who are not quite sure which lineup of Deep Purple to go after, or you've obviously got allegiance to certain things, to me, it's just all part of the Deep Purple family and all of the output um, is worthy of a listen. There are no bad Deep Purple albums. There might be some that are slightly better than others, but they're all worthy of your time. So thank you again for tuning in. Remember to check out the website at nowspinning.co.uk. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, become a patron or YouTube member. And remember, there's a Facebook group as well. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. Thank you very much. Remember that music is the healer and the doctor. And I shall see you all very, very soon.